Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is this is your host, Mark Schindler. Uh, as always, before we start today, if you have not already, please uh, rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd love to get your feedback. Uh, I am absolutely wiped this morning. Uh, I was up to like two or three last night, um, taking care of some draft stuff, uh, just enjoying the draft too. I was doing a live stream the entire time. So again, very tired. Caitlin, I know you're tired as well. What? How are you feeling this morning? I too am very tired, which is why I thought it was better for us to record this in the morning before our fatigue totally set in. Um, I was also up to about two or three working and then couldn't go to sleep because I had been up working because I wanted to put our best for- foot forward for this podcast and try to have as much information mm-hmm. and knowledge about the players that we we're going to talk about as possible. So ready to dive in. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the first thing we can start off with the with the number six pick in in, in the twenty twenty two NBA draft, uh, the Indiana Pacers selected Benedict Mathurin out of University of Arizona. First and foremost, going to plug the pod that you and I did with Zach Milner. Um, that one was really great, and I think you know if if you haven't listened to it, now is a great time to do so. Um, Caitlin, I guess I'll just ask you right off rip. I, I I know I've seen some of your tweets from yesterday, so I, I have a general idea of what you're thinking about it. But yeah, what 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 were your thoughts when the pick happened? Um, and where are you at with it right now? Well, as you know of me, a lot of times when we get done recording podcasts, I can't remember what we actually <laughs> talked about. So I don't remember if we said this on air or if it was in conversation afterwards when we were talking to Zach, but I firmly remember saying at some point in time that's the most Rick Carlisle player that we've watched so far. Mm -hmm. Like when I watched the first, I don't even remember which one of the three games that I watched first, just watching him and what actions they were running and how he operated. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be surprised if the Pacers really like this guy. And if that's ultimately who they end up taking, like we didn't come up with big boards. I wasn't making recommendations, even though like last night I was, I don't know, mistaken for Kevin Pritchard, I guess, and being told, <laughs> being that. told, congratulations on adequate basketball. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like he fits the style of play, and I know that Chad talked afterwards that they felt that you know they have enough holes on the roster that it's just about getting talent, which I think is the correct approach for their current trajectory. And I'm not necessarily saying that he fits the surrounding pieces or that they're filling a hole. He just fits with the way that from Dallas to Indiana that Rick Carlisle aims to play and run offense. So I was not surprised by the pick. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm in concurrence with that. Um, it's not, and again, like we'll, we'll dive into it more. It's not, I think it's a bad pick or anything. Uh, what, like, I guess I'll just give you my thing right off top. Um, the, uh, I think my biggest reaction to this when I was on stream um, and thinking through it was like, okay, this to me feels very much so like a, especially to considering, you know, some of the later stuff that this does feel like, and again, I'm, I'm also hedging here because I, 
I remain cautious until we actually see it play out on court, but it does feel like a push into being a more transition oriented team that's going to push out on pace and, and get out on the break. And it also felt too like, okay, we're taking somebody who we very clearly see playing off of Tyrese than necessarily taking the ball out of his hands more. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And that was in part, I mean, we talked about that on the podcast and, and if you look at it, that makes sense stylistically from what we talked about from the Malcolm Brogdon Buddy Heald review podcast. And I realize those were small sample size, but if you want to point to what worked with Tyrese and what necessarily didn't, it was a better fit. And I know that they've played together for two years, but if you look at the results with Tyrese and Buddy, at least offensively, that made a lot of sense. And I think if you are going to give up your two-time all-star and you're going to go into a rebuild, it behooves them to me to at least find out what all Tyrese can do. And you've given him a player now that, like what you just said, Tyrese wants to play fast. Benedict really unlocks his athleticism in the open court. Hopefully that's something that gets unlocked overall by the system. We've talked about that in the past. The actual transition frequency, their pace went up, but their share of possessions that they got in transition really didn't change pre to post trade very marginally. Mm -hmm. So, But maybe if you give Rick Carlisle the types of players that naturally do this, that that shifts things for that. and also just what Benedict Matherin does as a cutter. His instincts are so good. Tyrese's eye manipulation is so good. I think that's going to fit in the half court in addition to what he offers as a movement shooter. I do think there's a little bit of upside in terms of what he can do off of secondary ball screens. I mean, you could see that in the game we watched against UCLA. I mentioned on the prior podcast, like seeing the camera angle where you could actually, you know, watch him get the switch motion for the big to turn the post up into a seal screen and then him noticing that the baseline is open driving around that and scoring i still think the passing's fairly touch and go in terms of what his recognition is i know that the Mm -hmm. usc game stands out as like a gold standard in that area and he did have some impressive reads in that game in terms of him actually shifting defenders instead of just reading the open man and you do have to take into account that while a lot of the plays that i point out in that article in terms of you know, off ball plays are very NBA like actions. Arizona did run a lot of empty side pick and roll, which makes some of those reads easier in terms of not necessarily always having to read a backside defender in the same way that, you know, NBA teams will fill both corners a lot of times. So um, I don't know how translatable that will necessarily be depending upon how Rick Carlisle uses them. But um, yeah, I think from the off ball setting, I think it's, it's worthwhile. Not that everything has to be about Tyrese. You certainly want to get the best players available, but we had talked about it. Like, I don't know what the price point would have been. Sounds like Detroit was pretty set on retaining Jaden Ivy, mm-hmm. but I felt like when we did the Jaden Ivy pod, and I don't know if it necessarily came through when we were talking as much as maybe in the article that, you know, I felt like Tyrese could maximize and optimize Jaden. I was less convinced that Jaden would maximize and optimize Tyrese. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that cannibalizes what you're, we know what Tyrese offers to a degree. So um, is, did you feel similarly on both counts? Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is just not, and part of what makes this interesting is we don't have an answer right now. What, not that there's a right or wrong way, but it's like, is that good or is that bad? Like, I, I don't know, but I do think like, what we're probably going to try and parse through, and I, I don't think we have an answer to it yet, is what is the team's direction? But to me, like like we mentioned, it, it does feel like they're very much saying, okay, we're going to see if Tyrese can do this next year um, and be somebody who can be, quote-unquote, our primary option or, or point guard who is going to ignite an offense. Um, and that is pretty enticing to me to see that because especially with 
what the state of the team is and and how everything's going down. I, I think that that is the right move, um, especially if you value him that way, then actually put the chips in to see what happens instead of pussyfooting around with it like the team likes to do. Um, so I don't know. I think I'm very interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, there's definitely other options too. I mean, we won't get into this too deeply because I don't know how realistic it really is, but you know, if they are willing to throw an offer sheet at somebody like Miles Bridges, mm-hmm. that does give you more. I mean, in terms of what he can do on both sides of the pick and roll, they might our impressions of this might change, I guess I should say, in free agency, depending upon how else they fill out the roster. But so far from what we saw, at least for their the pick at number six, um, I do think another piece of it though is Chris Duarte. Yeah, I was thinking about that automatically. And I I think I think you and I have been once again in the minority on this. So maybe we're just being curmudgeonly. I don't personally think so. Um it just makes it a lot more awkward with Chris. Like we've talked about this a little bit before, but I think it just I okay, what is the backcourt then? Because Rick and I think KP had said have said this, like they view him as a guard. Like, they don't think that he's a three. Like, obviously, they think they can play some three, but okay. Benedict Matherin is pretty clearly a two to me. I mean, like, he can, again, somebody who can play some three, but I think ideally is slotting in as the two alongside Tyrese Halliburton. It just makes it funky. And we didn't even talk, like, Malcolm didn't get traded. That seems like something that is on the horizon just based on reporting and everything. But um, it, it just makes things very murky for Chris Duarte. Yeah, we're going to dive into Brogdon soon. But in Chris's case, I would agree. I think both of their natural positions are the two. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Benedict actually got measured at, but I know that both of us felt when we talked about him prior that he's not 6'6", which is what Arizona listed him at. Um, I I would really be surprised if that's what his actual height is. But and I don't know what his wingspan was at the at the. Uh, he measured 6'6 with shoes on, 6'4 and a half without uh, six foot nine wingspan. Okay. Yeah. I mean, cause this is a big part of it and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout this podcast is if I was identifying what their main issue was last year, wouldn't we say it's defense? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not saying, I don't think Benedict is on par with what I saw defensively from AJ Griffin. I I think AJ Griffin has a lot more issues, but Benedict has some, like I wouldn't refer to him as a three and D guy right now. I mean, I think three and D gets thrown around way too much, but um, if you go back and look at what our article was, since I guess it was like taken as like me propagandizing Benedict Mather. And I'm like, well, we showed both sides. Like there was stock up and there was stock down, but um, I'm not thrilled with what his screen navigation is. Um, a lot of times where he's hugging the screener and then just expecting the big to be able to switch and know what he's doing across several games. And then while he does get some weak side blocks that can be impressive, he doesn't seem to have the best reaction speed in terms of when he needs to come over as the tagger as the low man. And when he really needs to stay on that corner shooter, um, Mm -hmm. reads happen on the defensive end, as well as the offensive end of the floor. And both of those things stood out. I think there's probably more likelihood that some of the on-ball stuff might come around more so than what some of the off-ball issues are. I don't know where you stand on that. I know in general we we tend to think of off-ball being more teachable, but like just to use a Pacers-related example, 
I've now watched Karis LeVert play for Kenny Atkinson, um, Jacques Vaughn, Nate Bjorkren, Rick Carlisle, and in Cleveland, and I haven't really seen his off-ball defensive issues be fixed. And some of it is like an attentive, an attentiveness, and it's also like I think the best way to judge somebody's defensive processing is when you're in a scramble situation. Yeah. And there's times when they're scrambling where he's just like a beat or two too slow to get to the next thing that he needs to happen. And I'm not saying that none of this is going to turn around. I just think at first blush for a team that was the worst defensive team in the NBA after the trade deadline. And it's not like I'm expecting, like, again, we need to be realistic about what the timeline for this team is, but I don't know that they have an immediate upgrade on that end of the floor. I don't think Benedict Mathern is going to be the weakest link in a defensive lineup by any stretch, but I think it's going to take some work for him to be among the strongest. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I I'm right there with you. Like I'd imagine that the hope is that he just becomes a much better on ball defender, which is certainly possible. But um, like, like, like you said, I think I'm a lot lower on the off ball becoming good just based on what his focus and attentiveness tends to be and how he reacts to things. Um, it makes me a lot less enthused about what that might look like. Like hopefully it can improve in time, and I'm not saying it can't, but just yeah. based on what we saw, it, it's it, I like what you brought up with Karis. Like I think that we've seen guys who do improve with it, but also we've seen guys who don't. So that's just being realistic and fair. Um, and you say that about the on-ball defense. Like hopefully that is the area. I think that that one has a clearer path just based mm-hmm. on what we watched. But like I've felt pretty strongly that if they are going to go with a three guard, which is possible, I mean, Rick Carlisle in the past, I think if we were to ask him, he would say that he likes uh, being able to initiate offense by committee through multiple yeah. guards. I think that, you know, the more of those types of players you can have, the better is probably the way that they view it. Mm-hmm. But I still ideally feel like Tyrese and Duarte's defensive, what they add as defenders is going to be best if they are able to defend off ball as much as possible, because that's where their strengths are. Yeah. So that was part of what was enticing about Johnny Davis is because his micro skills as a screen navigator are as strong as they are. I felt like they'd be able to throw him uh, at the point of attack and really unlock what they do one pass away. And in terms of what they do, reading passes away from the ball, but um, maybe that comes around. We'll definitely get to get a closer look at it in summer league. Yes, most definitely. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to hit on from this. Um, I mean, just on Matherin's game, I should say. Um, well, it was definitely endearing to watch him afterwards and say, when he got asked, you know, what are the Pacers getting from you? And he's basically like everything, my heart. Um, it was definitely, it seemed very evident that that was finding somebody who was all in and wanted to be in Indiana. And, you know, like I said, both feet in was important to Kevin Pritchard when he talked post-draft lottery, you and I shared our opinions on that, but, um, to see then, you know, interactions with Tyrese afterwards, he talked in the post availability when he got to talk with reporters locally about, you know, Tyrese being his point guard and how they'll be able to play off of each other. It seemed like he was enthused the fact that the Pacers did select him in addition to just the fact that he was being drafted. So seeing all those reactions were were nice to see. And I do want to get your input on one thing, which this will be a whole nother talking point, I'm sure. But, you know, 
it is the Canadian Pacers now. O'Shea Brissett serving as the ambassador for the Pacers was pretty active on Twitter last night, welcoming Benedict Matherin as his fellow Canadian to the team. Tyrese Halliburton very vocal on social media as well. I did not see Malcolm Brogdon or Miles Turner having um, at least any online reaction. It doesn't mean they didn't privately contact or reach out these guys. Like, I don't want to infer that, but I did check this morning and there wasn't anything there. And then when I did head over to Miles's page to see what his reaction was would be, and I mainly did because he, of all the Pacers, is probably typically the most active on his social media account. And in past drafts, like I looked back and last year he was like, as soon as Chris got drafted, you know, saying like, welcome to the team, bro, and other stuff. He mm-hmm. never said anything. And then I did notice that he is now following nobody on Twitter, which, you know, that's fine. I'm not going to at all criticize that. I need to take breaks from Twitter sometimes, but um, it is a little bit curious just knowing what he's done in the past during draft nights. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, also, okay, just to just to go backwards now, I don't. I just checked his Twitter. He did. Uh, he did say hello on Twitter. Oh, he did. Uh, Twelve minutes ago. Yeah. How are we feeling about the newest Pacers indie? Welcome aboard, Ben Matherin. Uh, tags all three of them. Okay. Well, um, that was before I hopped on here. So no, no, you're good. It. I just so it just popped up now. Still, like, yeah, I'm kind of there with you, but um, it is interesting. Uh. What did you think? I think it was Bob Kravitz asked, because uh, I saw this quote pop up last night. I think Bob Kravitz asked Chad Buchanan during the media availability last night about Miles and, and Malcolm not being moved. What did you think about his response? Yeah, I mean, I think he was somewhat hedging his bets. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, he said that, and I don't know if this was in reference just to where they were selecting in the draft, but also with regards to what players on the roster. I mean, he said they had been aggressive, but sometimes you need to walk away from deals certain price points aren't right we don't know what was out there for either one of them so it's really tough for us to be able to judge what they did or didn't do and he did then say later on like these two things felt a little bit I don't want to say contradictory but somewhat at odds because he talked about you know having a young core that will also have some good veterans around them but then also mentioned like we also need to be realistic about you know, where we are is at a team that they know they have lots of holes that they need to fill and that this isn't just going to happen overnight. So it feels like there needs to be a little bit of reconciling there with regards to what they're going to do. I was thinking with regards to that, like we did see that the one offer that got released of the Lakers offering a first round pick. And I think it was THT and Russell Westbrook for Malcolm Brogdon was something that the Lakers had at least pursued earlier in the off season that the Pacers reportedly declined, but off the top of your head, do you remember in the like seemingly decades that Turner has spent in trade rumors, what any of the offers for him have ever been? Have you ever seen reports of what the offers for him have been? No. Yeah. And I just find that kind of strange. Cause like typically when, when these guys are on the block, we like at least have some degree of reporting or a baseline for what might've been out there. Um, and now sometimes it can be a little bit surprising, like what would happen with Jeremy Grant, his name's been out there for quite a long time. And then, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised by, um, what brought, what Portland was able to get for him. I mean, what they, all, all that they had to give up to get him is what I'm attempting to say in my tired state here. But, um, Yeah, the only thing I can ever remember like three years ago was that the Pelicans offered one of their fairly high picks or that it was rumored that they had offered a pick. And then I seem to remember the prior Indy Star reporter 
talking with Nate Duncan, I think on a podcast and suggesting that the Pacers at the time, and this was before Sabonis had started and kind of blossomed into what he was, had countered with Sabonis and that the Pelicans weren't interested. But other than that, and the fact that the Pacers themselves went after Gordon Hayward, I can't remember, like, I have no idea what to expect if they were to ever move him because I have no idea what teams have ever offered. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't really have anything to add to that. I think it's, uh, it is certainly interesting, especially to now, like I was thinking about this yesterday, all the teams, I guess, other than New York, depending on what happens with Mitch Robb, um, like all the teams that were in the DeAndre Ayton sweepstakes or have been mentioned as a, as a miles candidate are like, they, they took a center last night, like Jalen Duran to the Pistons, um, which I love that fit so much. I am stoked for the Pistons. Uh, Mark Williams now uh, with Charlotte um, and And Walker Kessler to Minnesota. Yeah, we don't, I don't want to talk about that one. Um, That, oh God, I, I'm sorry, Caitlin. I don't know if you watch Walker. I mean, yeah, you did because watching Auburn, I, I am perplexed by that pick to say the least. Um, Minnesota has felt for a while that they want a rim protector next to Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah, that Um, was. And that they want rebounding. So like we, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And I was questioning it like Miles has been linked to them for like a year now. Yeah. And I don't know that I fully understand that approach completely, but mm-hmm. it's clearly been on their line of thought for a while. And I do think that that eliminates another potential option. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, as a partner. Um, which is, uh, it just makes it interesting to see what is actually going to happen. And then Chicago, I saw their post draft presser and they said that because there's been all these rumblings, you know, about Rudy Gobert and, mm-hmm. and Vucevic that they want to build around the margins of their core and they want to find a rim protector to pair with Vucevic. Mm-hmm. So I found that a little bit interesting. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like there's potentially as many options necessarily, but maybe, I mean, they even came out with Atlanta that apparently Trey Young wants them to retain Clint Capella and that they still like Capella as well. So um I guess we shall see on that front, but do you want to go into talking about Andrew Nemhard at number 31? Yeah. Um, I'll just say straight up here that I was, uh, I was pretty confused by the selection. Like I like Andrew Nemhard. He's a good player. Um, I think, you know, especially to like his last game at Gonzaga was not a great indicator of who he is as a player. In my opinion, I think a lot of people are going to bring that one up. Um, but I mean, what, <laughs> Part of the reason we didn't even look at talking about him is because we just didn't think the Pacers were going to draft another guard, but here we are. They draft another guard. Um, what were your thoughts on this? I was very surprised for exactly the reason you said, because when we were doing our two second round draft pods, he was on my list. I knew that he had been rising up draft boards. I had heard that. And then I was like, yeah, but we we probably don't need to do that. Like I know that we did, um, Jordan Hall out of St. Joseph's, but that was me thinking like, you know, they could take him on a two-way contract, potentially have him play with the Mad Ants. He's also a wing who can kind of do some point guard things. Um, Andrew Nemhard's a good player. Like there's stuff that yeah. I like about him. It's just that I'm sure that they're going to try to thin out what some of the log jam is over the next few days. But I mean, they do have, ty- they have a lot of big point guards. They have Tyrese, they have Malcolm still, um, not that TJ McConnell is necessarily a big point guard, but he needs to have the ball in his hands. As we saw last year, like I would prefer him to have the ball in his hands as much as possible. 
And now they've taken Andrew Nemhart as well, which I think he projects mainly. I mean, we'll get into this more deeply here, but he's, I think, a better passer than a scorer. He's very patient with the ball in his hands. I think that he's going to play better with the ball in his hands, um, manipulating pick and rolls than he's probably going to do away from the ball for a well, couple yeah, exactly. reasons. That's what makes it interesting because I, uh, like, I, I think maybe it's, like, I would consider him more of a combo guard, but like ideally more of a combo guard is the problem. Like he's not really an awesome off ball player right now. Cause the shot is what the shot is. Like, I think that the ind- indicators are there and maybe Rick sees something in him uh, in what he can develop in him as a shooter, but also like just watching Gonzaga this year, if the shot wasn't going, he really struggled. Like it got better again, a lot better this year, but um, 34% from deep for his career if you just take the first three years, hold on a second, I'm trying to sort it out right now. I mean, yeah, just the first three years, 30, 32.6% from deep on decent volume. Granted, again, like the, the free throw shooting got better this year as well. Maybe it's just a mechanical thing he improved on, but very clearly like not somebody who is going to be thriving without the ball in their hands right now. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at as well. I mean, he shot, Synergy has him shooting 35% on all catch and shoot attempts in the half court, which that's from two as well as three. Um, But then when you break it down, he's 41% on unguarded and 25% on catch and shoot. And when you watch his stroke, I think that that makes sense because when he has to speed it up against the contest, it can get a little bit dicey. He does have the kind of like low to the point of his releases almost being somewhat as at his chin which, you know, Tyrese does that as well, but Tyrese gets his shot off very quickly. Um, I don't think that Andrew's release is quite that quick, which is why when it is contested, I think we're seeing the rate plummet to the degree that it does. Um, I I need to look and see how many of his shots actually were contested to see the sample size. Um, Hold on a second. I got to scroll down. Yeah, sorry for the pause. Yeah, so 20 of his catch-and-shoot attempts were guarded and 39 were unguarded. So, I mean, it's not a wild disparity there. He shot 5 of 20 unguarded catch-and-shoots. So, yeah, I mean, I think ideally he's the guy. I mean, his pull-up shooting, for whatever reason, I think has come a little bit better on from that. Some of that's because I think guys duck under against him. Sometimes he sees drops, so he has Mm -hmm. that space. Um, I did last night watch the Gonzaga game against Memphis, and watch Duran, you know, switch out. And sometimes I think, and what we talked about on the Duran pod showed up that he can switch and, and kind of mirror ball handlers, but at times his overall reception and receiving of the switch, he can give those guys a little bit more space. So it was a little bit easier for him to get the shots off in that way. I'm guessing that part of the reason that they took him is what I'm starting to sense from this coaching staff is that they really value guys who not only see the players in front of them, in terms when they're running pick and roll, not just what the screener's doing and what their defender's doing, but also reading what the tagger's doing, what the surrounding help is doing. And Andrew definitely does that. He plays mm-hmm. at his own p- pace. His timing and feeling for passes is very good. Calm, poised, you know, high feel type player. Um, has a floater. I don't know. How do you feel about his finishing overall? I mean, I- I've seen him be billed. Last night after I watched some full games of him. I kind of saw what he was being billed as and he's being called a three level score. Do you agree with that? I think he's much more of like a craft guy around the rim than somebody who's going to be an awesome at rim finisher, in my opinion. 
yeah, I think that when he's up against NBA level rim protectors, he he might have some problems in terms of what his overall burst is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just the like I don't want to just make it all about athletic ability, but I don't know if I would fully put him on the three level scoring ability and then what the catch and shoot is like him as the pick and roll playmaker. But then again, we have to circle back to the same thing that we did with Benedict. How do you feel about him defensively? I don't think he's awesome defensively right now. Um, I think he's, I mean, where are you at with him? I think he's like, okay. At some points, especially a point of attack. But like, again, I don't think his screen now is awesome. I don't think he's an awesome off ball defender. Like the steal rate's good, but I also don't think that that's that's more just having active hands um, and being a really good college athlete. Like I don't necessarily view him as a super plus defender right now. I think some of it was difficult to parse because he had Chet behind him, to be honest. And if Miles is still on the roster, he'll have Miles behind him in certain lineups or, you know, Isaiah Jackson behind him in certain lineups, depending upon how they end up viewing the roster and what shakes out. But that's why I wanted to pay attention more when I was watching a couple of games last night to what happened in the minutes when Chet wasn't on the floor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the one possession that stood out a lot was Duran's running a handoff and you and I talked about, I'm not thrilled with what Duran is as a screener. Currently, he kind of can have some goga tendencies, especially when he's running handoffs, like there's no contact there and he expects the contact and gets completely spun out. And then, he really likes to reach from behind. Like that's his go-to instead of trying to get back in the play, he kind of gambles and looks for that tap back. And then it's just completely out of the play. So um, I don't necessarily think again, like I don't know that they've necessarily addressed what their on ball and point of attack issues are. And it's not like that has to be fixed in year one, but it's not something that's jumped off the page so far in the two prospects that we've talked about. I think he can be a little bit slow footed and not necessarily ready to react in like catch and drive situations either. Like if he has to go and and get a closeout, it's not even just his closeout. It's that he's not quite ready to guard. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, I know that a lot of Twitter was very perplexed and it's not even so much for me. Like, and I've said many times, like I didn't interview these people. I wasn't at the combine. I wasn't at their workouts. I didn't spend years watching these guys play, but I know that there was some people from Pacers Twitter getting frustrated when there was, you know, EJ Liddell and other wings available. And then the Pacers took a point guard. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I I can't disagree with that. Um, Do you want to talk about the last draft selection? A wing. Yes, there there was a wing taken. Um, and I actually will say I was pretty like I have so we'll we'll definitely talk about some reservations with Kendall Brown as a player. Um, but in terms of where they got him, like I think this was pretty pretty damn good value-wise. Um, somebody who was mocked first round for much of the season. I think he struggled a little bit in falling in the pre-draft process. Um, but I mean this like you mentioned a wing and also i mentioned this last night uh on twitter like just thinking about this team next year okay so you have benedict matherin isaiah jackson um tyrese halliburton um o'shea uh kendall brown now like this is the most athletic pacers team in my lifetime like obviously you had lance and pg in, in 2013 14 but like that's just Lance and PG, like very different athleticism, like obviously a super strong team, but like in terms of like 
a team that can get out and transition and play. And uh, like, I think that we're going to see some dunk records next year. Um, that's, that's, I, that, that, you know, that's, that's our positivity for, for this team right now. But uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, let's turn it over to Kendall Brown. I'll ask you right, right away. What were your thoughts when he was the pick? Well, I mean, if you're not going to be a good team, there is something to be yeah, said for being an entertaining the the ball, team. Right? You if know? you're going to be, at least you're going to be an entertaining team. Um, I think that is his main selling point, honestly. Like he's yeah. very fast, six foot nine, jumps with ease. Um, there's definitely some electricity with him in the open floor, and that's a main talking point that I think what you already brought up. It does feel like they're, you know, trying to give Rick Carlisle players that are going to nudge him in the direction of being able to play faster. Um, that doesn't necessarily apply completely. I think Andrew Nemhard's more of a guy who plays at a very yeah, more, more methodic pace, but um, I think that you know Kendall. When you notice him, it's mainly because of what he's doing in transition. So, I mean, that that that's another conversation that I think we did have off air when we did the Jeremy Sohan pod. Didn't you ask me when we got done with that? What did you, so what did you think of Kendall Brown? <laughs> yeah. And um, I think I remember saying like, didn't notice not him. a lot because I yeah. didn't really notice him. So last night when I was done watching full games from Andrew Nemhart, I went back and watched those three games that we watched of Jeremy Sohan to to get a feel more for what he was doing. And it was interesting because most of the time when I did remember him from the past was some of what I noticed last night. And that it was more so that I was noticing Jeremy Sohan than I was really noticing Kendall Brown. So like, for example, when they played Kansas, I feel like the Kansas game is a really good case study for both of them. But the play that I brought up in that article where Jeremy intuitively goes to set an exit screen, which Baylor has quite a bit of freedom, I feel, and, and um, giving guys room to to set screens and play more out of reads at times. So he sets the exit screen for Kendall, and Christian Brown's guarding him. And Christian Brown's like, okay, see you later, bud. Like, he just camps out in the lane and is like, have a nice time going off that screen. I'm not following you out there. And and Jeremy then slips into that space, gets it, and makes the really nice wraparound pass, making the read, knowing that the other big's going to be there at the elbow, which I thought was telling for him. But also, when you watch it, kind of telling for Kendall Brown and that it was very reminiscent of watching the Pacers play the Warriors this season when they got into that game in crunch time that was at home. And Draymond, Steve Kerr put Draymond on Miles, and Draymond did the same thing when they were running Horns Twist and bringing Miles off the exit screen where Draymond was just like, okay, whatever. I don't care that you're going off that screen. I'm going to stay in here and muck up this pick and roll with, with Sabonis and Karras. Um, that definitely stands out. I mean, people know what his shooting numbers are. Shot 26% overall on shots classified as jump shots, 15 of 57. 29% on catch and shoots overall, twos and threes. Um, got most of his offense, 28.4% of his offense in transition, and then also got a lot of points off of cuts. So offensively in the half court, what do you kind of project him to be doing? What would his role be in the half court? Like regardless of lineup, like let's not get in necessarily to lineup, just like ideally what is Kendall Brown doing? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think what's frustrating or frustrating is the wrong way to put it. I, I, I totally don't mean like that. This is my exact reaction on pod was, or not on pod on stream was like, I like this in a vacuum. I just, my first reaction was, is this the kind of like, do you, do you see Rick Carlisle getting the most out of Kendall Brown or wanting to get the most out of Kendall Brown? I should say. 
my question is, and I don't want this to sound harsh, I don't know what that is. Yeah. After watching the three games, like it's very different from Jeremy Sohan. Like I could see things that, you know, coaches that are willing to lean into bigs as playmakers and with inverted pick and roll and other stuff, things that coaches could do with him that developmentally maybe Rick Carlisle would be resistant to. I don't necessarily see that same pathway necessarily for Kendall unless the jump shot really comes around which you know maybe Rick can work on some of the shooting mechanic issues um it's somewhat similar to watching Josh Minot um from a shooting perspective in terms of how low he's bringing the ball on the release um how much defenders are sagging off of him mm-hmm. they just really don't care and then he he kind of overall the way I would describe him when he's not, he's he's the exact opposite from transition to the half court. And transition, he turns into a track star and is super aggressive and, again, has all this leaping ability with ease. And in the half court, I would describe him as very hesitant in almost everything that he does. Yeah, um, He gets left open and he record scratches out of shots. He doesn't want to shoot. Then he'll put the ball on the floor. And his footwork can also be very hesitant when he gets into the lane. Um so I don't know, like he, he scored 92 points off cuts, which is a lot of points off of cuts. I think that's probably more than like, if we take away what Sabonis got, like in like dunker spots, that synergy counts as cuts. I think that's more than anybody on the Pacers scored last year. But the problem is, is that when you watch like the full game, like if, if you were just to click, Oh, let's watch Kendall Brown on every cutting possession, you would be pretty impressed. But when, when you're watching the full game, he wants to cut like, all the time. Yes. So on the one hand, he's very cognizant of the fact of like, I am not a good shooter. Therefore I need to move because nobody's guarding me. But like, just to use, this is going to sound like a contradictory example, but very early in the season last year, I wrote an article when Karis was out and Brogdon was out and they were having to start TJ and Chris at the same time. And like, everybody was talking about how much movement the Pacers were getting in the offense. And my point was, like, movement isn't always a good thing if you're Chris and you're trying to run the little, like, boomerang down screen play that Nate Bjorkman ran for TJ McConnell that I wrote about. And instead of staying in the opposite corner, you're running to the same corner that TJ needs to have that space to get to the basket. Like, that's not helpful movement. That's just moving to be moving. And sometimes Kendall does some of that, where, like, here's the two where it shows up the most. Like ideally, if you're not going to spoil spacing as a cutter and the driver is driving baseline, then you would be cutting from the opposite wing and timing that correctly. If they're driving baseline, then, or I mean, if they're driving from the opposite cut, then the, then the weak side corner man would cut. He wants to take the opposite player's cut. So if the person's driving baseline, sometimes he will go ahead and cut baseline anyways, right, as they're driving. And it also shows up in, like, pick-and-roll situations where if you're going to cut on the pick-and-roll, that's okay. Like, there's value to that. But you have to get there before the roll man gets to the basket. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't always do that. So it's not the same situation where, like, O'Shea's not necessarily always the best finisher on cuts, but his timing is almost always impeccable, and that's how he's resourceful as he is. There's times where Kendall's messing up the spacing with what he's doing, like just to put it nicely. Yeah, no, I agree. I think what's tough is that um, – I'm trying to think how to put it. Like I think – like I will say I'm more optimistic about his jump shot becoming a thing than I, I am with Jeremy. Like I think the touch indicators are a lot better. Um, honestly, his form on shots is not bad when he does take them, but again, it's like the actual taking them. And I think like 
like you mentioned, is an important thing. Like I'd be really curious to actually like sit down and talk with him and see what his wiring is and how he views his game. Because I found him like, like you're saying, like almost too reticent to not to, to make mistakes. Like it felt like he overpassed a lot of times. Like, I think that, um, like he has a solid feel for the game, but I think in some ways, like some of the passes that he was making, um, well, yes, they can look crisp and nice and like they're going to an open person. Like there are also a lot of times where I would just rather see him take something because maybe the defense would at least react to it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, that's why I said I would describe his overall half court game as somewhat hesitant. I mean, I do think what you just said bears out. I think he can make some nice passes on the move. He looks and finds the opposite corner pretty readily, skip passes with either hand, but it also like he really wants to find the skip pass a lot of the time. So that can be somewhat predictable, but mm-hmm. like just as like an archetype, what would you describe him as? Uh, Well, what's that's exactly like, that's what's so weird about him. Like he's, I think to me, he's a three defensively, but like, I mean, he's a five on offense, like, which is what makes it weird. Like, I think very clearly, like it, I I mean, he's such an odd case study for me as a prospect, just because, and I don't mean to make it sound like scientific or whatever and human, but like, he's just weird because I, I don't know how, I think like to me, the best way that you get stuff out of him, obviously I think like he needs to become a shooter on volume like that. Like, I don't think that he works in the NBA without that, frankly, but you also have to see him take real steps as somebody who is confident with the ball and taking shots, not even shots, just finishing. Like another thing we didn't even talk about, like he is very, very contact diverse around the rim, especially for somebody as athletic as he is. Like he's taking a lot of fall away, uh, a lot of fall away floaters, um, offhand layups, stuff that is like pretty averse to contact. And again, like he has some interesting displays of touch, but like, not to the level it needs to be where you can't take layups. Um, like yeah, he, he, he shot 55% around the basket, not post-ups in the half court, but that's only 45 attempts. So yeah. it's kind of like the Ben Simmons situation where if you just look at like Ben's actual numbers around the basket, it looks okay, but that doesn't account for how overly selective he is um, and what his touch can be if he were going to be taking more challenge shots. Yeah, no, exactly. And he is like extremely left hand averse, both in dribbling and uh, in finishing too. like, um, like, I mean, you can just watch too. I think after the first like probably 10 games of the season and especially in big 12 play, once they started seeing teams a second time, like you can just watch. And even like this happened to him when he was at Sunrise Christian too. Um, like teams will just completely shade his right hand and say, okay, dribble left and he'll just pass out. Like he won't dribble left. It doesn't happen. Um, so yeah, that's again, like he is, I, I don't like saying project because it sounds unfair and, and unkind, but like he has a ways to go um, in my opinion to figure out what his offense is. Yeah. Fun fact in the Kansas game, you know, that one mainly stood out because we got to see Jeremy Sohan playing small ball five. Do you know who McCormick was guarding in the second half, even when Jeremy Sohan was on the floor? Kendall Brown. Yep. Just a little fun tidbit there for for everybody to consider. Um, Yeah, I just, I don't fully know if I completely, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like if you, you can take a swing on a guy in the second round, that's when you should do it. If you, 
if you can find a six foot nine guy who has this degree of athleticism, it's not necessarily a bad thing to find out what he can do, give him some reps potentially with the Mad Ants next year or, you know, however their roster shakes out. But I don't know that I could completely define what he is um, in terms of some of the do- the left hand dominance. I, I did see him like there is the hint of glimmer, like I said, that he does make some whip passes with his offhand. Mm-hmm. So at least there's that much, like you're saying, though, it's not necessarily putting the ball on the floor. And we did see from the Warriors series, not that he's Jalen Brown, but, you know, when teams shade somebody aggressively left, it can cause a lot of problems. Um, yeah. Now, defensively, let's let's jump over to that side again, because this is my common theme from this podcast. What do you think of Kendall Brown defensively? I think that he can make some nice plays on the ball, but off the ball, he gets caught napping a lot, like a lot, a lot. I think that there's a lot that's going to have to be corrected on the defensive end of the floor. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, that's why I said, like most of what I'm seeing him getting projected as is like, you know, I guess if I was going to use like a recent player, like compared to Andre Robertson from the Thunder and I don't, think that I necessarily see that currently um he has the same problem that Andrew Nemhard does that like when I was re-watching these games last night he can be very slow to react mm-hmm. and off the catch when the guy gets the ball like there's a play when they were playing Kansas where he just gets absolutely wiped on ball the guy goes right past him and then there's like a pin and screen on on Jeremy and he's having to almost push his way through it in order to get to the basket um, he can come out pretty heavy footed to the floor, somewhat flat footed his screen navigation, which I don't know that that should necessarily be surprised. He is six foot nine, but this is not going to be Paul George or, or Robertson floating over the top of screens. Mm-hmm. Like he gets creamed and then he's either having to do like a late switch or that's just kind of the end of the play. And then like you're saying, like he can do a fair amount of, of, gambling too like i don't think he's a switch one through five player no not at all um and i think he can be fairly slow to rotate so like there's another play in that kansas game where he gets hit by the screen and then the other two players rotate out of a double team in the post and he just kind of stands there before he realizes like oh i need to go over to the top of the key that's my rotation so um i just kind of feel like overall with all three picks like there's reasons that i like all three guys and like i there's a lot that I like about Benedict Matherin, obviously, but for a team that ranked 30th in defensive rating over the back end of last season, and even more so than that, like looking at this with broader strokes, because this is really the more important part with this. If you're being honest, like just scanning last year's roster, did you see anybody make strides on the defensive end of the floor, like in terms of development last year? Like, mm-hmm. can you say that from the beginning of the season to the end that anybody got better defensively? No, not really. Like the only person that I would point out that made any sort of strides on the defensive end was Sabonis and he's on another team. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know how much of that, like some of it did because the coaching staff decided like, Hey, we need to play high wall with him. We need to have him out and above. And and he had done that in the past. And like, I think Sabonis either had to have worked on his agility training or loosening his hips over the summer because he did get better at doing that. But like, that's the only person that I can point to like a micro aspect of their defense and be like, Hey, that got better. And that's kind of somewhere where the little bit of the concern comes from then, because like, I think that there are things that you can bank on with each one of these guys and think like, yeah, that makes sense. I can work with the Pacers that can shift them more in in X direction, or that would really fit well with Tyrese. But in the past, 
it's like the reverse situation that you would look at with Nate McMillan and Dan Burke. Like when I knew, like I had gotten rumblings like two weeks before they trade for TJ Warren that like, Hey, the pace, the Pacers are going to be in on that. So I started watching a bunch of them and I'm like, yeah, the, the defense has a lot of issues here, but there's enough that to like offensively that I trust that the coaching staff will iron some of that out. I don't know that I can put, two feet in and trust that like what the defensive issues that are pretty clear with all three of these guys are automatically going to get ironed out with time. They might like, I'm not going to rule that out. I don't like to put limits on anybody that's immediately been drafted, especially when I've not even seen them play a summer league game, but I don't think it's guaranteed. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I am not super enthused about the defensive direction of the roster. Um, and I also just don't know, like this, this also does not clarify for us what kind of defense are they going to play next year? Well, yeah. Cause like I said, I don't, I don't think that you're switching one through five with Kendall Brown currently, unless he shows me like a lot that I haven't necessarily seen when they go to summer league. And we'll probably get somewhat of a hint of that. Cause last year you could tell pretty quickly um, based on what sets they are running. A lot of it was, you know, carry over from Dallas and then early on in the season, they were running a lot of the same stuff that the summer league team did defensively. They were using some of the same, you know, principles as well. So we'll probably get a good glimmer of that. So that actually should be somewhat telling in terms of what they think that their direction is, which is where I think the next question I want to go to is like, do you, do you have any better sense for what the direction of this team is after last night? Uh, not really. Like I, I mean, we got the Woj report that they want to focus on a rebuild, but I also am just like, I mean, to me, Nemhard was not a rebuilding pick. Not that I think he's like an immediate plug and play guy, but I just, it didn't seem like, I mean, maybe they view him, viewed him as the best pick available. Uh, I personally wouldn't have, but. I think that's how they viewed all three picks based yeah. on what Chad's comments were. And he did like, not to interrupt you, but he did no, curiously. Um, or not curiously, but he did mention during that, that like when you're selecting, you know, in the thirties and the second round, a lot of times that's going to be like four-year players who you think can, can contribute right away. Okay. I missed that. Well, yeah, no, that's. And they did mention too, that they felt like Matherin would be able to contribute right away for them as well, which I I agree. I think that that's where he tracks currently. I think that he can plug into what they're already doing. But then it does make it a little bit more confusing because, like you said, we never actually talked about the Woj report where he had essentially said that, like, it's likely that Malcolm's not going to be on this roster. They may not take a deal for Miles right now, but I kind of had the inclination from that that it's not entirely likely that he's going to be on the roster, at least by the end of next season, and that they're pretend pre- preparing to um, rebuild more with Tyrese as a centerpiece and go into that with Rick Carlisle, which I think you and I have been you know, fairly supportive of overall, but I kind of felt like going into it. Like if we look back at what Shams's report was whenever he talked about, you know, them listening to offers about Malcolm and miles and that, but at the same time, I think he put at the end of that along the lines of they could still, you know, not go into a full scale rebuild and keep their veterans. And like, he didn't say it'd still be competitive, but I guess my thinking is I hope that they already know which one of those tracks they were taking before they made these picks last night. Because yeah. I think that like whether there was a deal out there that was good for Malcolm or Miles or not, there clearly wasn't because they didn't make one. Like 
I wouldn't let that dictate my direction for me. And I don't know that they did. I'm just saying for me personally, what I plan to do next year wouldn't be based on, oh, we didn't get the offers that we wanted for Malcolm or Miles. So we're going to try to be quasi competitive. Like, even if you have to keep them on the roster for a time to try to recoup what some of their value is or show that Malcolm's healthy or whatever it may be, given that some of the reports were that he's currently a negative asset based on, you know, potentially health concerns, like that's not going to change who I would draft. Like, I wouldn't just be taking guys who I think are ready to play now because, oh, well, we didn't, we don't think that there's offers out there for Malcolm and Miles. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 100%. That makes sense. And I don't know that's that's what they did. It sounds very much to me like Chad's comments were, you know, we have a lot of holes and we're not really in the position to draft necessarily for fit. We wanted to take the best players available and that's what they felt that they did. So if that was the direction going into it, then I'm all here for it. And like I said, I did not spend years as their scouting staff did watching these three players play. I stayed up and did like a major cram session on two of them over like six hours last night. So, and I also, like I said, I'm never going to declare somebody as a bad draft pick before I've even seen them play any basketball, let alone, you know, like a year of basketball. Yes. I agree with you in entirety. I think that there's a lot there. Uh, again, I think a lot is just going to be like what happens with the rest of the offseason is going to paint a lot more of the picture for us. Um, I think that it can be, I mean, it did make me feel a little bit bad last night because like even more so than Matherin, I kept seeing that like the trend on Twitter was Brogdon. And like, I, I hope that like, I think it's pretty certain that Brogdon's going to get moved, whether it's today, yeah. tomorrow, next week, the start of next season. I don't know, but it seems pretty certain. I don't think like Chad did talk about, like, it's a good thing to have as many players who can make plays with the ball as you can. And he mentioned all four of Andrew, TJ, Tyrese, Malcolm. I don't think that they're going to go into next season with all four of those players, but I do hope that people remember that Malcolm did play some really good basketball for the Indiana Pacers when he was healthy. Like it seems like some of that's getting lost. Definitely. Yeah, no, I agree with that in entirety. Um, did you want to hear anything else before we got here? Let me see. I think that that pretty much covers our rundown. Um, it's possible that we'll be back sooner rather than later, depending mm-hmm. upon what continues to go on um, with what seems to be ongoing Malcolm discussions. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, well, Caitlin, this was great. Uh, it was very fun covering the, the, the draft cycle together and getting ready for it. And, I'm sure that we'll have a lot more exciting stuff coming up soon. So uh, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed your night last night. Uh, if you haven't already, go check out the uh, the pod that we did with Zach Milner uh, and the write-up that we did as well. Uh, most importantly, have a good rest of your day.